Decor America. Decor. That's how long, at least for me, my family has been kept in basically kind of a lockdown at home. Uh, not leaving the house except for groceries, which I believe are essential. Uh, I also believe a lot of other things are essential, uh, and we can't do that. Uh, supporting our local businesses any way we can, even if it's with a local restaurant. And, you know, once a week we're ordering in and trying to, you know, help out the local community uh, as best we can, still helping our neighbors out, maybe going out for a walk. Uh, there's, you know, trying to trying to keep some sense of normal during such unnormal times. And I know for you, you have to be feeling the same way. These are extraordinary times. Uh, it's like something out of a science fiction book, except it's very, very real. And, you know, we're all trying to make heads and tails of this novel coronavirus, this uh, COVID-19. And, you know, it's important for me to seek out the best of the best to bring you actually the news directly from the top experts. Uh, I have with us later on the show, Dr. Amesh Adalja. He is an incredible, incredible virologist. He's a senior scholar at John Hopkins University Center for Health Security. You've probably seen him on Fox and on other uh, television networks discussing this pandemic, what it means, what it looks like for the future of our country. He's going to be talking about that. When do we come to a point where we get back out uh, into the public? What is that going to look like? What do we need to do to protect ourselves? Uh, a lot of questions that I still don't know myself. I'm asking him, what do we do? And, and he'll be coming on later on to talk about that. I also have Jenna Ellis. She's one of my favorite people to have on the show. Uh, she's wonderful at explaining what's going on in the White House and the issues raised by this pandemic and the constitutional crisis that we're also in. What does this mean? How are we handling this? How do we move from these type of state and local lockdowns uh, to a more normal life. And what is essential and non-essential? I mean, as far as I know, that's not in the Constitution, right? That's not in the Constitution. How do we balance that out and still try to mitigate the spread of this virus? And that's why I have her on the show uh, to explain some of that, explain what's going on in the White House. And I think you're going to be very interested in what she has to say about the media and the failure of some you know, journalists, White House journalists to ask the right questions when they have the president right there, President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence and the top experts. And that's what we want to do. I want to get your questions answered. In fact, I have an idea. I have an idea. I think I'm going to start tweeting out asking what you would ask the president. And maybe what I'll do is ask the White House if I can come into some of those briefings uh, sit there and ask your questions, right, directly to the president. We will pick questions. I'm not saying that the White House is agreeing to this. This is full disclaimer. I just came up with this idea right now. All hypothetical, about, completely theoretical, but what a great idea. Great idea, right? What do you want answered about this virus? How are you feeling? Maybe, maybe just maybe, the White House will let me come in and ask some of those questions, because I think that's important. 
And that's something that, you know, Jenna kind of just brought up in a general sense. She had tweeted about actually about this, about, you know, why, why not bring in regular Americans into the white house? Well, send them to me, send me the questions. I'll ask the white house if it's okay. I'll ask with your name. I'll say, you know, Jan Smith from Indiana wants to know, or Roger so-and-so from New York wants to know. Uh, Maybe we can get some uh, questions to the president directly from the American people, because uh, after all, it was the American people who put him into office, and it's the American people right now that are suffering. And by the way, there is a story that I have to tell you about. I was just, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it this morning. But a former police officer, this is in Colorado, was arrested in the park for throwing a ball with his daughter because of social distancing rules. Now, this is just so insane. I want you to think about this. I walk with my daughter to the park. She has to get out. You know, we walk out. We take our precautions. We're not running up to people. We're not hugging them. We're not kissing anyone. We're not, you know, we're social distancing as a family from other people. And you know what? We're talking to people, though. I'm saying hi to people because I've noticed that people are even afraid to talk to one another. We're out on these walks. Everybody's wearing their masks. You know, it's like, and bandanas. Remember? Oh, I was, this was so crazy. I was in the store the other day and everybody, you know, there was like a whole group of people and they were wearing bandanas around their face, like old bandits style with glasses. And I was thinking to myself, my old days in LA when I was covering the gangs and, uh, you know, I covered, uh, both the Crips and the Bloods and, uh, you know, the Latino gangs in L.A., but particularly the Crips and the Bloods because the Bloods always wore the red bandanas back then and the Crips were always wearing the blue bandanas. So that was a big thing in the 90s. In the 2000s, early 2000s, you know, you never wore colors because you were signifying some type of affiliation with a gang member. And here I walk into Safeway and everybody's walking around bandanas. I was like, (laughs) the first thing that crossed my mind was like, holy cow, we really have changed. I mean, we're walking into stores now with our faces covered, right? We don't even know. I mean, before, if somebody would have walked into a store like that, we would have thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to rob the place. When are they going to pull out the gun, right? Now we're just, we can't even see each other's faces. I think it's a brilliant idea that some of the doctors in New York and across the country that are actually dealing with coronavirus patients actually put their picture right now on the front of their, you know, their uh, suit, you know, so basically this uh, contraption that keeps them from getting contaminated, the bio suit, right, to keep them protected from transmission of the disease. But they're actually putting their faces on the front. I'm wondering when that's going to happen with us, when we're all going to start walking around with our faces on our T-shirts so people know who we're dealing with. I mean, this is how crazy sci-fi this has become. Uh, So anyways, I want to go back to this police officer story really quick before we get to our guests, because they eventually just let him go. They were like, oh, it was a mistake. You know, we uh, it was overreach. And, And that's because they found out he was a cop. Right. He was a cop. Here he is throwing a baseball with his six year old daughter in a softball field, by the way. It was probably throwing a softball, not a baseball, but in a softball field that is completely empty. Right. There's nobody there. It's just like a few people scattered way in the distance. And here come the police and they're handcuffing this former police officer in front of his six year old daughter. Can you imagine what is going on here, people? I'm going to tell you something that, you know, I don't usually I I, want to bring stories that 
I think will connect with you things that I've experienced in my own life. And, you know, I know this is a scary time for a lot of us because we don't understand coronavirus. We don't understand it. We don't know why this is so prolific now, why we're making all of these changes to our system, to our society to deal with it. But I've traveled a lot of the world, even when I was a young kid. And I have been exposed in many situations uh, to illnesses, I'm sure, where, you know, they're trans easily transmittable and where there's no doctors or there's very little medical facilities in the area or in villages. Uh, Jenny and I were in Guatemala last year. We went to a small town. Uh, we were interviewing a lady and her daughter uh, was extremely ill, her older daughter. And they had a little baby and they lived in pretty much a makeshift house. No air conditioning, extremely hot. Uh, they were very poor. Uh, they did with what they had. They had no jobs. They had just lost their jobs. Uh, actually they, they would pick the beans for the coffee in Guatemala and they, they had, their family had lost their job. Uh, they weren't able to get, uh, any medicine. It was a very sad situation. The daughter was in the house coughing and coughing and coughing hand over her face. The baby was in a little makeshift swing out on the front porch, wrapped up and bundled, you know, to protect it from the flies. Uh, and they were cooking a pot of black beans outside, flies everywhere, you know. And I was talking to this poor woman. I speak Spanish fluently. I was speaking to her about her situation. And, you know, it was, it's, it's a tragedy. It's really sad because there are people all over the world without access to medical care. There are people all over the world without access to doctors. And, you know, this is when emergent viruses and diseases and things like cholera emerge and other things. And, you know, of course, you do your best to take precautions, to not be exposed. We have phenomenal doctors in our world with Doctors Without Borders who show up, who uh, basically try to assist and help. Uh, people in villages like the one we were in. I've been in villages uh, in Afghanistan, the same, same situations where I, you know, I really don't know if I'm being exposed to something, but I really want to tell the story. And I take every precaution, you know, I carry my hand sanitizer with me. I always had a mask with me, even on assignment, in case I ran into a situation where there could be some type of transmission. And look, we can't always stop it, and we're probably not going to stop it with coronavirus the way we think, right? I mean, a lot of people are going to be exposed. A lot of people have been exposed. Uh, and, but I want to leave you with this, with this thought, you know. We have been around for a long time, human beings. We have been exposed to these viruses since the first time we existed. And we have survived, and we go on. And the one thing I want us to think about is don't let fear dominate your life. Don't give in to fear to the point where you give up your rights or your common sense or your ability to ask questions. You know, do the right thing. I believe in us. I believe in our nation. I believe in human beings. I absolutely believe that we exist now because of our common sense that we will do the right thing to try to mitigate this virus. We don't need, you know, 
the hard hammer of Soviet style conformity to get us to do the right thing. I also believe that the government are both on the, you know, uh, on the federal level as well as the state level is going to do its best to guide us and give us the information that we need and to teach us to do the right thing. But we can't get to the point where we are willing to give up what makes our nation so great that we are willing to, you know, give up our rights or start turning in neighbors because they might not have worn a mask or maybe they went for a walk or videotape people. I mean, you know, we can't become that type of society. We don't want to give up our freedoms because of countries like China and Russia and other nation states like North Korea and Iran who are going and are taking advantage of this situation right now in the United States. Let me play you a quick clip of Attorney General William Barr. Before I get to the doctor, uh, I want you to hear this because this is very significant and very important. Who is the bigger threat to America's election security, Russia or China? In my opinion, it's China. And and not just to the uh, election process, uh, but I think across the board, there's there's simply no comparison. China is a a, uh, very serious threat to the United States geopolitically, economically, militarily, uh, and uh, a threat to the integrity of our institutions, given their ability to uh, influence things. It's incredible. That was uh, Attorney General William Barr exclusively with Laura Ingram on Fox News. And I think we need to heed his warnings. And we shouldn't allow fear to control us so much that we're not seeing what's happening throughout the globe and how that will affect us and what's happening to us on a national level. And that's why I'm so grateful to have Dr. Amesh Adalja with us today. He's a senior scholar at John Hopkins University Center for Health Security. His work is focused on emerging infections and disease throughout the world, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity, people. We need to be aware. We need to be on the offensive. We can't be on the defensive anymore. Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're a very busy man, and uh, particularly particularly right now during this time of crisis. So I just want to start off asking, uh, first of all, there's been some reports that have been now publicized that uh, medical professionals believe that this that the coronavirus has actually been circulating in New York City since February, uh, that people were exposed to it then even before even before the first reported case. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Sure. So this is something that many people in the infectious disease community believe was occurring. We had a community spreading respiratory virus that we didn't know where it was, where it wasn't, because it had been spreading in China at least since mid-November. And a virus like that can disperse pretty far uh, before you even, you know, before you even get started, even knowing that it's there. And that really led many of us to believe that it could have been in many different countries, it could have many different routes to get here. And it looks like, based on the latest research, that this did get into New York uh, before it was actually noticed. And that that's not surprising. Remember, most of the cases of this infection are mild. They are indistinguishable from colds and flus, so they're going to get missed. But what's ha- important about those cases is that they're contagious and they can set off chains of transmission 
And only when someone is severe enough to go to a hospital or get noticed or somebody does more diagnostic testing do we know that it's here. So, you know, almost every location in the world, there likely were cases that were missed before the actual first case was identified. So this is the big question. A lot of our listeners out there, a lot of you who are listening to this have the same questions I've had, and we're trying to understand this virus. What makes this virus, the coronavirus, COVID-19, so different than the flu? You know, there's a lot of people lot of disinformation out there, a lot of people that are still confused as to why we're taking such precautions with the coronavirus as per se to a, a flu virus uh, or even H1N1 or the swine flu. What makes this different? Well, coronaviruses are a distinct family than influenza. They have some similarities in the way that they're transmitted and the symptoms that they cause. But when it comes to coronaviruses, there are no human vaccines for coronaviruses. There are no antivirals for coronaviruses. In this coronavirus particularly, this is the seventh human coronavirus that we've discovered, doesn't have a precedent. Is something novel where there is no community-level immune response to this. That means that everybody is, is susceptible to this virus. And if everybody is susceptible to this virus, even if only a small percentage need to be hospitalized or die, a small percentage of a big number is a big number. And we know that our hospitals operate at or near capacity all the time. And when you have this type of an infection infecting many different people, there is a real threat that you could throw your hospitals into crisis and basically make the healthcare system grind to a halt and get higher case fatality ratios, other medical conditions being unable to be treated. And that's why we treat this differently, because it is something that's going to infect a lot of people, and it's going to have people going into hospitals and put them into, into crisis. And that's why we do this differently, because influenza is something that's kind of baked into what we do every year. Even though seasonal influenza does kill tens of thousands of Americans, and in 2017, 2018 killed 80,000 Americans, it's something that people prepare for. It's it's not something novel. Um, and I, I would argue that influenza is neglected by many people. We don't think about it. That's why only about 50% or less get vaccinated every year. But this is on top of influenza. So remember, it's not taking the place of influenza. This is in, this is on top of influenza. And I think that's something that's often neglected in the discussions where they compare it to flu. I think that's such an incredible point, kind of like a light bulb moment for me, because we, we are still dealing with influenza, which is deadly. I mean, we've seen, you know, just since October, uh, I believe the numbers are somewhere around 40,000 of, of, of deaths of influenza. And now, you know, compacted with that, we have the coronavirus. So absolutely, when you're thinking about those numbers and what happens to our hospital system, it's pretty incredible what our medical and healthcare workers have to deal with. I think one of the things that I'm trying to figure out too is the vaccination part. I know that there's been a lot of talk that they're working on vaccines. As you talked about, this is a coronavirus, a novel coronavirus, which is different than when you're treating and influenza, and unfortunately, only 50% of people get their vaccinations. I think it's very important. Vaccines have, have saved humanity in, in a lot of cases from, from diseases like polio and other diseases that are out there uh, that, were, that were deadly to us in the past and now, unfortunately, seem to be on a rise. What about the, this novel coronavirus? Is it possible that we will get a vaccine to, to, to be able to treat this in the future? Or... Or are we just grasping at straws? I do feel optimistic that a vaccine will arise for this, vi this virus. 
we have veterinary vaccines against coronaviruses, so it's not something that's completely unprecedented. And there is basically a worldwide race to get a vaccine for this novel virus with co companies from all over the world basically putting out candidates. We've got several that are now in phase one clinical trials, which is a, a real record time to get something to uh, from basically concept to vaccine candidate. But it's important to remember that even though we have these vaccines in phase one clinical trials, the development time of vaccines is usually measured in years and sometimes even decades. So the best case scenario, if everything goes perfect, would be probably 12 to 18 months. So the first waves of this virus are going to be fought without a vaccine. So what do we do? And what do we do at this point for each one of us that's out there, you know, trying to do our best? I know I've been on lockdown with my family. We really haven't. Our daughter hasn't even really left the house in the last four weeks studying at home. Uh, I tried to order groceries online in the last week. And uh, also, if I have to run to the pharmacy to pick something up uh, and, you know, keep our social distancing, doing our best to to try to help mitigate the spread of this virus. Could, could this literally last 12 to 18 months or do you see it receding and then coming back? What are your thoughts and what are you hearing from the medical community? So this isn't a virus that's going to magically disappear with some amount of social distancing. It's going to be with us until there's a vaccine because it's established itself in human populations. What we're trying to do now with social distancing is preserve hospital capacity. And it seems to be working in many parts of the country. And with that, you're going to see cases decrease to a, a rate that's much more manageable for hospitals. It doesn't mean that less that people are going, not going to get sick. People are going to get sick when we leave when we lift social distancing, but they're going to get sick at a rate that doesn't put hospitals into crisis. So you are already seeing plans to start to reanimate parts of the world that have basically been shut down because of this this virus. And what we're going to be left with is doing social distancing on our own. So if you're somebody that's older or have other medical conditions, you're probably going to be recommended to social distance just as much as you're doing now. But for other individuals, I think it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Certain businesses are going to open, but you're still going to have to be mindful of the fact that this virus is out there and then you could spread it to somebody that could have severe infection. But it's going to be at a rate that, that's more manageable than what's going on, for example, in New York City right now or New Orleans. Right. So, Dr. Adalja, I know that you, as well as other virologists, experts in the medical field that deal with uh, that deal with the possibilities of pandemics. I mean, this is this is your world. You're you're trying to mitigate a pandemic, a global pandemic like this. But a lot of you had predicted this in the past and have talked about this from even Bill Gates Foundation. And Bill Gates has been uh, pushing and giving grants you know, uh, in the medical field, you know, to try to come up with vaccines, uh, ways of mitigating the spread of all kinds of diseases. Can you talk a little bit about your work prior to this and what the medical community was doing to try to prepare for this and maybe where some of those failures came in on a global scale? Uh, were governments just not listening? Were people just not believing in a sense is actually a reality until it struck? Sure. So what people in our field have been doing is warning about the threat of a pandemic. We've had pandemics uh, as long as the human race has lived in, in society uh, when they move from hunter-gatherers to, to, to uh, fix settlements. And this has been a fact of life. And we've had major pandemics in the 20th century in 1918, 1957, 1968. 
And people were more attuned to that risk, I think, uh, with flu. And then in 2009, we had a pandemic with H1N1, um, which we alluded to earlier, where 61 million Americans were infected, about one-fifth uh, of the world's population in about, um, in about a year. And that pandemic was not severe in terms of death, and I think that made people very complacent. And it was not even just that pandemic we were warning about. We were warning about pandemics prior to that. People were worried about SARS, which was another coronavirus in 2003, which caused about 8,000 cases. But the, the fact is, the world has become very much smaller than it was in terms of the fact that you can get from one side of the globe to the other very quickly on a flight. And now viruses right. travel at the speed of a jet. They don't travel at the speed of a steam a steamboat where people would get sick in, in, on, the, on the ship and they would either recover or they would not recover, but they wouldn't really have that risk of moving a virus from one part of the world to the other. We have that now. We also have high population density centers, megacities all over the world that are basically tinderboxes for infectious diseases to spread rapidly. So there are major risks. And we know that respiratory viruses, particularly because of how they spread, because they spread through coughs and sneezes, are very hard to stop if they get going. Because, for example, if it's something that's related to sanitation or something from blood and body fluids like Ebola, you can actually intervene pretty easily and stop those types of outbreaks. That's why Ebola was never a threat to the United States. But when you're talking about a respiratory virus, and I specifically did a major project on pandemic pathogens, and I identified respiratory viruses as the number one threat. They really are going to be uncontainable if they get going. And, th and that's what's happened here. And we've warned and we've talked about surveillance, increasing diagnostic testing, getting our hospitals prepared, thinking about antiviral therapies, making better vaccine platforms so they can rapidly develop vaccines. We've been doing that for years and years and years, written report after report after report. But it's not something that governments prioritize that much because it's something that's not seen and it's usually something that falls into this cycle of neglect and then panic when it happens and then neglect again when things recede mm -hmm. from the headlines from from anthrax to bird flu to h1n1 to to middle east respiratory syndrome to sars to zika to ebola every time these things appear they get headlines for a while they disappear and so does the interest from policymakers and and the government and then we're left with what we have today which is using these very blunt tools of economic shutdowns because we didn't do that preparation that we should have been doing for decades and, and we're all suffering because of that. And I think this is the important lesson that we should draw from this pandemic because it could have been preventable. It was predictable. And now we're suffering the consequences of an ill-prepared government. So looking towards the future, I mean, this is something that we really have to be on the offense and not on the defense, which is it seems to be the reaction of most governments right around the world to almost any crisis instead of being prepared and ready to go. Uh, one of the questions right now, I think, in preparation and handling the coronavirus is random sample testing. We hear this over and over again. Can you explain the importance of that and also to, to do more testing? I know there's been 1.87 million is what the president said, uh, tests conducted so far, probably more since he made that statement a few days ago. Talk about the importance of testing and random sampling. So what we want to do with testing is not only be able to diagnose individuals who are sick so we can treat them better, but we want to have situational awareness of where this virus is, where it isn't, what actions are appropriate in one community, what actions are appropriate in another community. And the only way we're going to do that is with widespread testing. And some of that can be random. You can just go and do surveys basically with blood work surveys or, or nasal swab surveys in communities to understand 
how common is this virus in our specific geographic area? And use that to help gauge hospital capacity needs, for example. You can even do that with, with flu tests. So people were getting tested earlier in this uh, outbreak for influenza because it was still prevalent. And the people that tested negative for flu, you could take those samples and then randomly test them to see was the coronavirus present. And some places did that. They, I'm based in Pittsburgh, and we, we were doing that in Pittsburgh. And they were doing that in, in the Washington State area as well. And they actually picked up a, uh, an important case in Washington State using that type of survey. So it is really important to do that. And it's not just going to be the nasal swabs. Eventually, it's going to be antibody testing to try and see where was this virus, because that will tell you if people were exposed. And that's going to really help us understand how we move forward. And it will also give us answers to mysteries. So what is the true hospitalization rate? Is it 15 to 20 percent, like some models say, or is it more like 5 percent, what we saw in Westchester? And what is the case fatality ratio? Is it 1 percent or is it 0.6 percent or is it even lower than that? We don't know all of those answers because we don't know the denominator. We don't know how prevalent this is. And I think we've been flying blind for a long time in the United States when it comes to this because of our problems with diagnostic testing. We want to get to a place where we can test for this just like we can test for HIV in our homes. Uh, and, and there's no no friction or no, no bureaucracy that gets in the way of our testing. And we still have some ways to go. It's getting better, but it's still not quite there. Another question before I let you go, because this one's very important, I think, in a sense that we haven't really been talking about about this possibility and maybe it's a future possibility or being prepared for something like this, like a virus. I interviewed uh, in the past about maybe five or six years ago, I had done a documentary with uh, a man by the name of Sergei Popov. And I don't know if you know who he is, but he was a bioweaponeer. He was from the Soviet, former yes. Soviet Union, came to the United States. And it was actually during the time of Ebola, to be more clear. And one of the things that he talked about is, you know, particularly when you are fiddling with a virus in a lab, for example. This we don't know. We, we're still, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know, wh whether it came from a wet market, whether this was a natural virus, whether it came from a lab, we don't know. Um, but, but in the sense of being prepared for the future, you know, and I got to tell you, I was a little scared. I, every time I talked to Sergey, I would say, Sergey, I left with this really horrible feeling, you know, that people can fiddle with these viruses and create something completely different that is weaponized. And that's really frightening. Is that something that the medical community is looking at? Is that something that, I mean, is a concern for you? Uh, how do we handle that? Now that we see what this virus has done, this no novel coronavirus, and how it's just shut down the economy, do we need to be prepared for for anything in the future, I'm guessing, because particularly when I think about what Sergei Popov and I discussed, that seemed to be a very big concern for him. It's definitely something that we've been concerned about, and the think tank that I'm affiliated with was actually founded in response to bioterrorism and was instrumental in responding to the anthrax uh, attacks in 2001. So this is something that we definitely have to prepare for. But the thing about this is, is that when you prepare for in engineered threats like anthrax or or plague or smallpox or whatever it might be. At the same time, you're preparing for all infectious disease threats because it's the same assets that you're going to be using. Antivirals, diagnostic testing, vaccines, uh, health departments, all of that infrastructure is going to be useful if the, if the threat is intentional or if it's a natural threat. So that's really important. There is no evidence, however, that this coronavirus was engineered or, or that it's anything but a natural coronavirus that happened to find its way from animals into humans. But it is really important that we think about that going forward, that we are prepared for these threats, especially as biotechnology increases and we have 
individuals and 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 state governments out there that may want to use biological weapons and they have been used in the past and, and we were attacked in, in 2001 with anthrax and and had a massive calamity and, and five people dead uh, from anthrax so it's it's really important that we prepare for all infectious disease threats and including the engineered ones and I guess the last question is, uh, where do we go from here? Do you see hope that this will subside and that we'll move back into a normal life or will it be a different kind of normal? What advice can you give to, you know, everyone out there that's listening to you right now uh, to maybe kind of ease those, those concerns that they have that that maybe their lives will be forever changed? We will get back to something that is resembles normal life. I do think that there are going to be changes that occur until we have a vaccine. I think it's going to be very daunting to have any kind of mass gathering event until there's a vaccine. And that's going to be difficult for people to adjust to. I do think, however, that businesses will reopen, schools will reopen. There is go There are going to be some societal changes, though, because people are doing a lot of things digitally now. They're doing virtual meetings. They're ordering things online. And that may change our society and our economics for the future uh, because people will get used to it. So there may be less travel in the future for business meetings because people have gotten used to using web applications. And I think we're going to see some differences that occur. But I do think we will get through this. It's going to be rough. And I think there are some signs of hope with New York not going into full crisis and their cases plateauing. So, so I do think that there is a general consensus now that we need to start moving into a new phase soon uh, regarding how we move forward with this because these economic shutdowns have consequences. There are other health conditions that are being neglected uh, because of it. And, and, and people out of work and out of livelihood takes not just, a, not just an economic toll, but a psychological toll and a health toll. That's absolutely true. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, you know, we do need to take that next step, at least be once again on the offensive and that comes to the economy and as well as a lot of other health conditions out there where people can't get access to their doctors right now or it's elective, but in the end, it's important for their overall health and their future for each individual and certainly getting businesses back up and running um, and we are going to have to find new ways but that is a really hopeful uh, note to end on and Dr. Adalja I can't thank you enough for your time and uh, I would love to have you back on. Sure anytime thanks for having me. So it was great to have Dr. Adalja and you know here at the Sarah Carter show what we want to do is be able to talk to you directly have the people that are here that are being interviewed, uh, even through social distancing, uh, talk to you directly and get you the answers that you need. Because think about this, at a time when we are desperate for answers, at a time when we are looking for answers to, to figure out what's next, what happens to our country, what happens with my business, what happens with my kids, wh when will they get back to school, when will life get back to normal? At a time that is so critical in our country, we have a lot of reporters at the White House, the few that are there, social distancing and, you know, doing the Q&A with President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence, uh, basically asking gotcha questions and talking about some Netflix series, Tiger King, and not getting those critical questions answered. And, and we don't just need political questions. We need Questions answered like Dr. Adal just spoke about, uh, you know, with regards to this virus. What does this mean? How is this affecting my life? And 
how are we going to handle this? How are we going to get back to some kind of normalcy? And I felt really hopeful in the end of his interview that they are looking at that and that we are moving forward. Uh, that's why I brought back Jenna Ellis because she is real. She's really incredible. First of all, I've known her for some time now. I've become great friends with her. Full disclaimer. Uh, she's brilliant. That's why she's the president's attorney. And that's why she's been working on the campaign. She's his personal attorney uh, and is an expert on constitutional rights. And these are issues that you and I as Americans really need to be made aware of. And I'm so grateful to have her back on today. And I'm going to be bringing her back on throughout this crisis, hopefully once every week to talk to you directly and give you updates. Remember, she she speaks to the president daily as well. So she has great insight. Here's Jenna Ellis. Jenna, thank you so much for being back on the Sarah Carter show. I, I'm telling you, I think you and I are going to become a pair. We're going to just start doing this like every week or every other week when I can get you because uh, you have really laid out such incredible arguments, uh, particularly regarding the media as well as our constitutional rights uh, in a crisis like this. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I do think we make a great pair, so would love to come on anytime because these topics, Sarah, that you're covering, honestly, the rest of the media is not. And so these are really important things for uh, Americans and people want answers right now and they don't just want the talking points and the spin of the media. Absolutely. I want to play you a clip. And uh, this is uh, Dr. Tedros. He is the director general of the World Health Organization. And I want to get your take on what he said. And this is pretty much a jab at the president of the United States as well as others. So just just listen to it and let me know what you think. Please don't politicize this virus. It exploits the differences you have at the national level. If you want to be exploited, and if you want to have many more body bags, then you do it. If you don't want many more body bags, then you refrain from politicizing it. What's your take on Dr. Tedros and how the World Health Organization has been operating during this pandemic? Well, a couple of things, Sarah. First, that's basically a veiled threat. I mean, that's that's the who saying that if you don't fund us, we're the sole arbiters of how healthcare should be run and we are the only resource for answers and we're not going to cooperate and we care more about our funding than we care about those body bags. That's basically what he's saying. And that's actually showing precisely why President Trump is so right that the United States needs to recontemplate whether or not we will be funding them. And we do have our own experts. And of course, we need to cooperate with uh, the rest of the world in terms of sharing information. But let's remember, this is a president who understands and ran on the promise of America First to make sure that we don't get taken advantage of by organizations like the World Health Organization, like other countries like China. That's why the phase one China deal and the trade in the USMCA has been so successful, why he's been saying for years that we need to bring manufacturing back to our shores, why we need to close our borders, why we need to make sure that we are prioritizing America. And so to have 
the World Health Organization basically say that they are prioritizing their own funding from the United States over helping us in this pandemic, that just simply crystallizes precisely why President Trump is right. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Jenna, because all you have to do is look at how the World Health Organization operated during this pandemic early on, touting China's claims that this virus was not uh, transmittable human to human. They even issued a statement out on their Twitter across the globe, basically touting the same exact propaganda that China was pushing Early on in January, we saw that. And by the way, Dr. Tedros, and a lot of people don't know this or they haven't heard about this, was criticized early on in 2017 when he was uh, the leading candidate, actually, for the World Health Organization. People came after him, charging that he basically uh, was covering up for cholera outbreaks in his own country of Ethiopia when he was the health minister. And you know, there was a lot of concern that he taking the role as the uh, director general for who was upside down, was basically upside down because here's a man that was accused of basically covering up, covering up three major cholera outbreaks in Ethiopia that killed so many people. And so when we think about how we're being played here. I mean, everybody hears World Health Organization, and we imagine in our heads that these are the top doctors uh, global globally, that we are going to get the best information, the most accurate information, but we don't, because we even saw the number two of the World Health Organization basically covering for China during an interview with a Hong Kong reporter. And that is very concerning, and, and I think what... President Trump did was the right call. He put the World Health Organization on check. He said, no, you know, we we give you so much money. We fund so much of this organization. And what we've received is threats and backlash and inaccurate information. So I think that you're you're right on this. Where what do we need to do? Do we fund our own doctors, our CDC? We work with within our own in, in an effort to help the world. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Sarah, one of the things that you just said was really critically important that we trust as as a country and as a nation, we tend to trust that the World Health Organization, that these doctors have the same priorities and values that we do and that they themselves don't have specific political interests. And this is what's so dangerous about uh, globalization is because once we outsource and we trust other countries to have the same values and priorities, we are putting America in the hands of someone else and we are not uh, valuing in the same manner our own national sovereignty and our own decision-making. We're relying on other countries for accurate information. And that's why it's so important to make sure that we do have our own doctors, we do have our own experts, and that can be tangential information and you know certainly that sort that level of cooperation but we shouldn't make the mistake and this is why president trump is entirely correct on this we shouldn't make the mistake of presuming that these world organizations are not themselves politicizing things and that they don't have other interests that actually conflict with our own this is why when um, even parties in litigation why 
each party is represented by their own counsel because you want to make sure that your counsel is serving your best interests. And that's why you can't have one attorney representing a bunch of different people who may have varying and conflicting interests. And so President Trump, he always says, I am the president of the United States of America. That's my priority. And so for all of these other uh, you know, for all of the Democrats and all of these other people who are politicizing this and want a globalized nation, that's the danger is that you're basically saying, I'm allowing the United States then to not be the first priority. Our citizens aren't the first priority. And we're going to go ahead and give this to someone else who may have a competing and conflicting interest beyond what's in the best interest genuinely for America. Absolutely. And I, well, I want to just pedal right on that statement of yours and go forward with information. What we're seeing at the White House during these press briefings uh, has literally, in some cases, become a joke because here are yes. all these reporters who have access to the president of the United States, the top doctors, medical experts in the field in the United States, as well as the vice president. And they're asking questions about Tiger King, which, by the way, for the first time, I just saw the first episode uh, last night because I had no idea that how popular the show was. I'm just working too much. And uh, I still am questioning why I even watched the first episode. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I just wanted to know what was going on. Sarah, in the show. you have to get through two. I'm just you have to get through two and then you'll be hooked through <laughs> okay. seven. Oh, okay. So I got to get through to you. Um, I, I love tigers. Um, I don't think I would ever play with them like that or, you know, put my hands in their mouth. But um, my my cat's enough for me. My rescued cat is enough for me. But here you have, that's good, Adam. I will, pro I promise you, I will watch episode two. But I'm looking at um, right now at the White House and wondering where some of these reporters, what are they thinking? And why they're not focused on such, I mean, this is a critical time in our nation. People are losing their jobs. The unemployment rate is like we have never seen before, not even during the Great Depression. And this is, people are really, really terrified. They want answers. They want to know when things are going to change. When are things going to get back to semi-normal? Um, what's going on as far as uh, where this virus came from? There's so many questions. China's role in this. What do you think's happening uh, with these uh, at the White House press briefings and how the president is handling this? Yeah, well, you know, Sarah, I think it's really interesting and very telling that um, CNN, for example, is uh, covering pretty much only the Q&A portions, uh, which I think is is very interesting that they're only choosing to cover what's over politicized and what's really uh, this back and forth that seems to be this just gotcha moment from a lot of reporters. And, you know, my tweet suggestion, which um, actually ended up getting um, almost a million impressions from people because it was reshared so much, was I was so fed up with this. And the president has so much patience to deal with these ridiculous reporters. My suggestion was instead of all of these reporters from outlets, why, do, why doesn't the White House just um, get a random selection of 15 average normal Americans every day? to come in and ask questions that they're really concerned about because they would ask more intelligent, legitimate questions than these reporters. I mean, I was just, I was, I couldn't believe that a reporter 
was actually asking, here you have the president of the United States who's taking time out of his schedule every single day to come in and brief America on what's going on. And, and you know, the information, the data, the models change daily. That's that's just what happens when we're learning more about this virus. We're learning more about the areas that are the hotspots. And so they're coming in daily to brief us. And you have these reporters that then are asking such nonsense questions. Like, what does he think about Tiger King? I mean, come on, we can have a, you know, we can have fun in in the midst of our work from home. We can have, you know, the memes are great. We can keep our good humor. But to use that moment to ask such a silly, ridiculous question and then have an entire piece on, you know, the president says that he'll look at a pardon for Joe Exotic. I mean, is that really what the Americans who are losing their jobs, who are concerned about their grandparents, who really want answers, that's what reporters are focusing on. I mean, it's a complete joke. And that is not what the media should be doing. So they're on one hand, they are saying to President Trump, you're responsible for the worst outbreak in history, you yourself, and they're and they're trying to over inflate this. And then on the other hand as well, simultaneously, they're making a total joke out of it and they're minimizing something that is a national health emergency. They, they aren't acting like the adults in the room at all. That's what President Trump, Vice President Pence, um, you know, Secretary Pompeo, who was there, the rest of the members of the task force, they're the adults in the room. These reporters are acting like children and America needs to not put up with it. Well, and, and look at this, Jenna, I, not only that, and I, I totally agree with you on every single point you just made. I mean, I, I agree with you 100%, but there was also concern right now. Remember, there was a reporter from a Hong Kong outlet that eventually uh, w- was discovered that was connected to the Communist Party of China, was sitting in the White House, was allowed in by by the White House press pool, and it even prompted her questions were basically uh, pro-Beijing talking points right there in the White House press pool. And President Trump even asked if she was working for China. Like, how are you here? Yeah, he he absolutely pegged it. He saw through that and, you know, he called it out directly. And, you know, this is something where President Trump is so brilliant. And I don't say that just as a talking point. I mean, I know him uh, personally, you know, I talk to him, um, you know, I mean, almost daily. I, you know, I work in my role with the campaign as well as being one of his attorneys. And I have seen how much his attention to detail is amazing. And so he knows what's going on. He knows, he knew immediately where that question was from and how it was directed and he's calling her out. And, you know, and he has been so great at these press briefings by calling out reporters and saying, you know, your question is ridiculous. Your question is, um, you know, it shouldn't be framed that way. It's just, it's a gotcha question. And even though, you know, people are are saying, oh, this is almost like the new, you know, WWE matchup and they're looking for this sort of drama back and forth. The reality is he shouldn't have to go through that as the president of the United States in the middle of a press briefing. I mean, prior presidents, frankly, have hid behind their press secretaries and their press staff. He could have simply delegated this to Vice President Pence and his task force. But no, the president of the United States is coming into that press briefing every day and he deserves so much more respect. He deserves more serious questions. And he deserves legitimacy of reporting. Because and the American not- people, Jenna, and the American people deserve to hear Absolutely. him. Deserve Absolutely. to hear him. 
Absolutely. And that's what, you know, CNN and some of these other outlets that are only covering bits and pieces or only the Q&A portion rather than the data and the information, because, you know, some of them are claiming that this is somehow, um, you know, tantamount or synonymous with a campaign rally. That's ridiculous. And that's absolutely trying to just spin their narrative and cover the fact that they don't want to provide the American public with this critical information because, you know, heaven forbid that it makes President Trump actually look like the excellent and amazing leader that he is. Well, before I get to your op-ed, which I think is brilliant, and I, I want to touch on that before we get off the call, I want you to hear this clip, and this is Nikki Haley, and it deals with China directly. And, I, I, you know, the, remember the president, this is the first time we have had a president in the White House that has actually held China accountable the first time. And I want you to hear this clip from Nikki Haley because I think it's pretty brilliant. This is about China's influence into these multilateral organizations. We fought this the entire time I was at the UN. Right now, they head up a civil aviation organization. They head up an agricultural organization. They almost became the head of the World Intellectual Property Organization until Singapore came in and saved us from that. They're on the Human Rights Council. And now we're seeing their influence in the World Health Organization. This is what China does. They try and leverage and get influence. And what we're seeing is the World Health Organization once again has fallen for it. And I can't believe they're gonna go so far as lecture the president. I mean, if anything, we deserve to hold them accountable. Now, that goes back to the original Dr. Tedros, uh, you know, unveiled his veiled threat to the president. But it also goes back to the fact that we see, you know, China's influence, even in the White House uh, press briefing room and President mm -hmm. Trump, as you suggested, and as you know, and as I know, can sense a room in a minute. He can sense what's going on. He can see who's uh, who's who's the bad player there. He can call them out on it. That's what makes him such a great businessman and, and such a great leader, by the way. But we see China's influence across the board. And that's a big concern because Attorney General William Barr also, and I, I played that at the beginning of the show, Attorney General William Barr said, this is our greatest threat. It's mm -hmm. China, more so than Russia, more so than any other nation. What do you think about that and how the president has to balance all of this out, still be geopolitical? I mean, he's he's working on, you know, our foreign policy, how we're going to bring jobs back to America. Uh, he's done an incredible job. But now with the coronavirus, how do you think that all balances out in his mindset as he tries to tackle all of these issues to get America back up on its feet again? Mm -hmm. Well, President Trump is a fighter and he is a fighter for America. He is working around the clock uh, to make sure to keep Americans safe in every single way, not just this pandemic, but our long-term economic health and our long-term uh, place on the world economic stage. And so, you know, his uh, his trade advisor, Peter Navarro, has been one that I wish uh, there had been, there is more media attention on right now because he's doing a lot of um, the, the trade policy and looking into why uh, China is such a threat. And so just in this, I mean, I fully agree with what Nikki Haley said. And, um, you know, there have been several interviews that Fox News has run. Um, and, you know, Peter Navarro has been on 
you know, I think a few other networks, but pay close attention to him as well, because, you know, China, um, it has kind of even just within this, the limited scope of this pandemic, not only victimized the United States and the rest of the world once with this virus that they knew about, they didn't share critical information about until um, it was too late. And we are even wondering and questioning, are is the data coming out reliable right now? But they're also attempting to re-victimize a second time the United States, France, Brazil, Italy, and other countries through this PPE equipment. So if you look at the customs data from China from January 24th for a five-week period, and you see how China is um, not only withholding the, the manufacturing and the exporting of their own PPE that um, should be given and is normally sold to these other countries, but they were actually buying up and purchasing um, PPE equipment like the N95 masks are between five and 50 cents. And then they are trying when when nobody knew that we were going to need such a large quantity to uh, to counter this pandemic. And now they're trying to resell to the countries that they purchased it from, including the United States, for between two and seven dollars per mask. I mean, this is something where the virus originated from China. They knew about this. They victimized us once. Now they're trying to re-victimize us. And you're, you know, there are still people in this country who say we need to be for globalism. Um, absolutely not. This is why sovereignty matters. This is why President Trump. He is a fighter. He is America first and why not only our trade policy, but our economic health and our place within the context of the world stage absolutely needs to be America first. Wow. I, I know I only got like a minute and a half left with you, but I want you to touch really quickly on your op-ed, why it's unconstitutional to keep grocery stores open while closing churches. I want you to talk about that quickly. I, I'm going to bring you back on next week to get into this, I promise. But I really want you to touch on this because I know this is what Americans are most concerned about. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Sarah. And, you know, this is really important. You can find the full piece at The Federalist. Um, just go to The Federalist and my name, Jenna Ellis, and you can find this piece that talks about this complexity um, as we are sitting at home under a, a lot of these stay-at-home orders. The federal government uh, has the obligation only under its limited authority, and President Trump has stayed within the margins of constitutional authority, which he says he cherishes, and I firmly believe that he does, providing only resources and support and recommendations to the states. It's the state level leadership, it's the individual governors, um, mayors and local level that are implementing these recommendations. And the concern that I have, because even though we know that there is a compelling state interest here, we have this global health pandemic where there is limited authority for uh, some of these restrictions temporarily to be implemented. The concern that I have is that these stay at home orders are giving governors the arbitrary ability to distinguish between what is essential and non-essential. So if you as a private business, a private service provider are deemed non-essential by a governor, then you have to shut down. But if you could comply with the restrictions, why shouldn't you be able to stay open? So should it matter if you're a grocery store or if you're a Hobby Lobby or if you're a church, as long as you can implement the same exact uniform objective regulation of social distancing. Why should it depend, why should your success in your opening as a business depend on whether or not the government deems you an essential service? I think that's the wrong constitutional question and we are setting up 
our precedent to give over too much power to the state and local level to determine for private businesses what we can and can't do. We should have a uniform standard just like fire safety codes have always been uh, food safety regulations. As long as you can comply, it doesn't matter the service you provide. You can stay open. It should be no different in the middle of a national health pandemic or regular health recommendations and regulations every single day. Absolutely. Because remember that for all of you out there, I, I, you know, just like me, we're at home. We're concerned about our businesses. Some of you may have already lost your businesses because of this. Jenna is right on the point. This is about our constitutional rights. And you're right. Having some kind of uniform standard, if we all comply with it, there should be no reason why we can't keep our businesses open. Nobody should tell you what is essential and what is non-essential. The Constitution doesn't do that. And you need to read Jenna's piece at The Federalist. It's why it's unconstitutional to keep grocery stores open while closing churches. You can also follow Jenna Ellis on Twitter at Jenna Ellis. That's J-E-N-N-A-E-L-L-I-S Esquire E-S-Q. So that's at Jenna Ellis Esquire on Twitter. Follow her. Keep up with her stories she's got amazing sources and she does incredible columns and it'll open up your mind uh to what's happening right now and what we can do to get america back on track and back to normal thank you so much jenna for being with me thanks for having me sarah this is about our civil liberties and i'm going to bring jenna back on just like i said we're going to talk about this but more importantly we're going to talk about where do we go from here What do we need to do for the future? How do we plan to get back on our feet, to get jobs roaring again? And uh, are we going to go back to some kind of normal? Yes, we will. We are going to get back to some kind of normal. We just see news coming out of New York. It's better than it was in the past. Still, we know that, you know, deaths reached an all-time high. But right now, we see things plateauing. That's coming out of New York right now. the number of hospitalizations basically grew by the smallest number in weeks, according to Governor Andrew Cuomo. And that's good news, folks. That's good news. The virus, what we're doing is working. We're going to see what happens from there. We're going to listen to these uh, daily briefings and get the truth from the White House. And we're going to bring on experts here to the Sarah Carter Show that are going to be able to talk to you directly about how you can get your business back on track, how you can get a job again and start moving towards some sense of normalcy. Let's get prepared. Let's be on the offensive. Let's be ready to go. Once the government gives us the go ahead, let's be ready to do the right thing. And that's what we're going to do for you here. I promise on the next coming shows, we're going to have some amazing guests that are going to tell you how you can do that, how you can get started right from your home. Thank you again for being with the Sarah Carter show. I'm coming to you from my home studio, social distancing (laughs) across America. Um, Please read our latest stories at sarahcarter.com. You'll find the latest there. And follow me on Twitter at Sarah Carter DC. Subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And I promise you, we'll be back. And we are taking back the story, America. God bless you. Praying for all of us.